Welcome to Improv Interviews. This is Margot Escott, and I'm really delighted to have a friend named Michael Golding come on the podcast today. Actually, Michael and I had a wonderful interview a few months ago, and it was so good, I misplaced it. And he is such a kind, generous, loving person that he's going to be speaking with me again today. Hi, Michael. Hi, Margo. How you doing? I'm so much better today now that I'm speaking with you. That was a, a terrible moment. So I think I sent you an email saying, remember how they say there's no mistakes or right or wrong in improv? <laughs> <laughs> we are, we're, we're supposed, supposed to embrace our mistakes. That's right. Well, I've owned it and I'm embracing it. So there's so much to chat about with you. I've really enjoyed your writing and your comments on Applied Improvisation Network and your other comments everywhere. So tell me what you're doing tonight. I know you're going to be having a nice dinner. We've been discussing your menu. Yeah, uh, um, two, two friends of mine who are alumni of Second City, uh, Jane Morris and Jeff Mikowski, run a theater in Culver City. It's called The Fanatic Salon. It's a lovely theater. It's only about 60 seats. It has a little courtyard attached to it so you can hang with the cast before and after the show. Uh, but most of the shows there are done by also former alumni of Second City or The Groundlings. And tonight is a show called Two Bazaar. Uh, Mark Belsman, who is also alumni of Second City, uh, he plays the tuba. And his thing is he'll have a show, but he invites musicians to join him as long as they can write in a tuba part for him. And tonight he has a special guest star, Emo Phillips who is a comedian I have not seen in over 30 years when I worked in the comedy club in New York. So this is going to be kind of interesting. Uh, the last time I saw Too Bizarre, Mark had a special guest star, uh, Mina Cole, who's a founding member of Playwrights Theater Club and uh, Compass, and it was wonderful to see her perform. Well, Emo Phillips, I know very well. He's he's very out there. That should be an incredible evening. That sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. It's I had an improv group at the Comic Strip Comedy Club years ago, and I remember when he first performed at the club, we had never seen anything like him before, and I thought it was an act, this sing-songy kind of man-boy persona he had, and then finding out afterwards, no, that's him. That's what he's like. Wow. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this tonight. Oh, that'll be a fun night. So, you know so much about the history of improv because you helped produce a wonderful film about our beloved friend and your beloved teacher, mentor, David Shepard. Not everybody knows about that, so you maybe tell, tell my audience a little bit about that film and about David. And that'll be the rest oh. of the interview. <laughs> about David, David uh, Shepard, who is uh, the father of improvisation, uh, he created, with Paul Sills, the first improvisational theater in North America called Compass, which started the careers of people like Mike Nichols, Wayne Mays, Severin Darden, Barbara Harris, Alan Arkin. The list goes on. And I met David in 1972, when I was 14 years old. He uh, was producing a radio show called The Responsive Scene where uh, the listening audience would call in with scene suggestions, and the actors there would act it out. You can either listen or direct or perform with them. I became a regular caller, and when the show ended at the end of that summer, David and his partner, Howard Jerome, uh, 
inviting me to join in on this new format called the Improv Olympics. And ever since then, I've either been, was directly involved or consulted on all of David's formats, and he's one of my closest friends. Um, are you still there? Yes, I'm just not visible to you now. Um, my late friend, Willie Wyatt, who uh, co-created the Canadian Improv Games with Howard Jerome, which is a teenage version of the Improv Olympics, he wanted there to be a concrete record of David's work. Uh, because, because most books or articles about David are usually about Playwrights Theatre Club or Compass, sometimes the Improv Olympics, but Willie wanted to do the entirety of David's career. And the original idea was just to do a series of podcasts. We weren't supposed to make a movie. Uh, but when Mike Fly and I, Mike Fly was the director, when we got to Belchertown to film David, uh, it became clear pretty quickly his memory wasn't great, and it was kind of hard on him. By the second day, he was, just tell me what you want me to say, and I'll say it. And Mike and I felt he's not having a good time, so Mike sat me down, and I did the entire David Shepard timeline, and that way we were able to make it easier on him. And just as an afterthought, we had David's wife, Nancy Fletcher, in, the, uh, in one of the interviews. And then we just started thinking, well, what if we got this person on camera, or that person, or that person? And we had pictures, and we had videos. And close to $10,000 later, we made a movie. It's brilliant, too. I really suggest people find it. I'll put a link on it on the website with our talk, because it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's David, called David Shepard, A Lifetime of Improvisational Theater. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, the intention was never to make money off of it, and we achieved that magnificently. Uh, although I have been in a lot of improv festivals, and it played on Canadian TV. Um, but we're very proud of the work, and um, it's a great record uh, for experienced improvisers, for people getting into improv. And uh, I'm thrilled that David lived long enough to enjoy the response we're getting from, uh, from the film. Well, he still travels. When was the last time you saw him? He went to Chicago this year, didn't he? Um, or last he was, year? Uh, he was in Chicago early in the year. I last saw David this past April. It was the uh, 40th anniversary of the Canadian Improv Games. He almost didn't make it. He... Um, was in the hospital the week before, so he missed a fundraiser we had in Toronto a few days before the festival. Uh, but two days before the end of the festival, Nancy contacted me and went, we're coming. And it kind of became a thing with the staff and the students where the ancient one is coming. The ancient one is in the air. The ancient one has landed. Um, and we had an impromptu form with him, which I moderated, and it was great. It was great. I Every time I'm with David, I, it's in the back of my mind, this could be the last time I'm with him. Always proves me wrong, and he turned 93 on October 10th, so still kicking. And, and due to you, I was able to speak with David. We were going to do a podcast, but um, 
He's a very interesting gentleman. He does have a little memory thing going on there. But we started playing some games together, but they became very sal salacious. Is that the word I want to use? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> I'm not accusing him of sexual harassment, that's for sure. Let's <laughs> just say he's a man of his generation. He certainly uh, is. But it was, yeah. Nancy's wonderful, too. I just adore Nancy. They're both terrific people. And so, David, I, a little bit about David's history, because, you know, people talk about uh, Del Close and, of course, Viola, um, but not everybody talks about the contribution David made. And one of the things I appreciate him is he had a, you know, he was a rich boy from New York, right, from uh, the eastern coast, and he was interested in, in social justice and social and community theater, I mean, bringing theater to the people. Yeah, yeah, because he felt that what he was seeing on Broadway had nothing to do with real life. It was, in his words, bloodless. It was mostly rich people in evening gowns with martinis talking about, you know, what was going on in their lives. And David went, I can't relate to this. And he wanted to do a popular theater about real people's lives. I mean, originally he wanted to go to the steel yards and have the workers you know, do shows about their lives. That was his original idea. Uh, then he found out that the steel workers wanted to do that. Um, but it was, I guess just the way it all worked out for him, because he had this idea, but he didn't know how to bring it to life, and it wasn't until he went to Chicago and hooked up with Paul Sills, uh, and they first worked on Playwrights Theater Club, where they did mostly classic plays, which David produced for two years, but, but at, at the, the end, end of that, that that's when, when all right, now let's try this popular theater. Um, and did have his idea of scenario plays, but he wasn't able to bring them to life. And Paul, when you know my mother, Viola Solon, has these great games that maybe we can use them. And it was the combination of David's vision and Viola's games and Paul's direction that really made Compass work. And I think when talking about Improv Olympics, that David even spoke with Viola about how she felt about Improv Olympics, because it is a bit different from her games. Yeah, in the beginning, she wasn't thrilled with the concept of it, because she felt that acting was competitive enough. But David said that the competition was really all for show. In fact, in the beginning, everyone won during the matches. We were having an award for the team that did the best characters, the best emotion, the best story, uh, the best uh, exploration of aware. Um, but as the Olympics evolved into uh, 10 specific events, it was clear to Viola that the events were really a loving celebration of her work. In fact, David drew up a contract when he brought the Improv Olympics to Chicago in the early 80s, that the only way to train for the Olympics was by doing Viola's games. Hmm. So, and you were there for the Improv Olympics in Canada. You were still a young man. Not so uh, old now, yeah. but... Huh? <laughs> I first got involved in the Improv Olympics in New York City. I'll, I'll give you the quick timeline. In 1972, that's the first time we did the Improv Olympics in New York City. I had the first teenage team, Fool's Paradise. I did the Olympics all throughout middle school and high school. In 74, 
Dave and Howard Drum brought the Olympics to Toronto for an improv festival. And uh, it was the homemade theater. And a man by the name of Larry Mullen went, if this is a sports-like presentation, then let's make it more sports-like. And that's when they came up with actual events like sound swimming, emotional hurdles, character relay, time dash, space jump. Um, and then Howard stayed in Canada and brought the Olympics to Ottawa in 75. And that's where he met my friend Willie Wiley, who was then a high school student. Willie brought his friends in, and they did what was then called the Canadian Improv Olympics. But in 1977, when Willie and his friends were in college, they decided they wanted to give something back to the community. So they produced their own Canadian Improv Olympics. Dave and I were there for the first one. Willie and I developed a quick friendship. And in 1981, I moved to Ottawa and lived there for two years. And I worked exclusively on the Canadian Improv Games and also another format called the Inside Theater Company, which was produced by Planned Parenthood, which was a series of scenes that we developed with improv about teenage lives. So I've been involved with the Improv Olympics through all its different versions for a very long time. And then David brought to Chicago in the 80s and hooked up with Sean Halpern, and that became I.O. Um, and then David and Sean went their separate ways, and that's when she hooked up with Del Close, and that's what became I.O. And are they still pretty similar, do you think, or have they changed over the years? Uh, it's a huge change. It's a huge change now. Uh, they mostly, I.O. mostly does... They do many different formats, but the Harold seems to be the main one. Uh, the Harold is a long-form improv format. Del Close was saying for years he has this format where, just based on a suggestion, you can improvise a full 40-minute play. Uh, he started doing that with the committee in the 60s. Uh, but when he hooked up with Shauna, she went, you know, these two events for the Improv Olympics I worked on with David, could probably enhance the Harold, and those two events were uh, Time Dash and Space Jump. Mm -hmm. So they don't so much, they used to have professional and amateur teams doing the Olympics, but now it seems like it's mostly I.O. doing different types of improv formats, the Harold being the main one. Well, you mentioned the Insight Theater, and didn't you have a little, a couple of TV shows that spawned out of the Insight Theater? Yeah, we, um, the CBC did a one-hour adaptation of our show, um, and it was interesting because our stage show was very physical, uh, there was a lot of humor in it, but in the TV version, uh, which I had the one-hour tape of, it was a little darker because of the three-camera setup, we couldn't be as physical, so we had to be kind of stationary doing stuff, and it seemed a lot like the way the show was promoted was teenagers, it's dark, it's depressing, look what they have to live through. Um, but it was interesting, I kind of call that my compass, because uh, I developed it, I rehearsed it the way David uh, worked on Compass, and it, we toured for about a year, 
And the, the Insight Theory Company, company is actually still, still around in Ottawa. They have a different cast every year. So they've been doing that since 1982 or so. So, and, and, and you still have a video of it. Do you ever show it? or what do you do? Uh, Yeah, I, um, in fact, after this, I'll post uh, one of them on my uh, Facebook page. Uh, I've only been able to upload. I need a 16-year-old computer genius. I've only been able to upload... At, at most a half hour of the show. And it's a full hour. The first 40 minutes we do scenes. And then there's a question and answer period with the audience. Uh, first, we would have the actors doing the character. We left all the scenes unresolved so that we can encourage discussion. And then there was a second part where we both basically talked as ourselves about how we put the show together, what our experiences were like, um, what we might do with future shows. Um, it, it was, was a very exciting period, and it's kind of cool to be part of two long-running programs in Canada, uh, which helps at-risk teenagers. And, and you spent many years, haven't you, working with at-risk teenagers? Yeah, yeah that, that kind of became a large part of my work. I mean, the first time I did it was with the Insight Theater Company, and when I moved back to New York... I was working for New York University as an instructor and administrator, and I decided to take advantage of uh, their tuition remission program. So I went back to get my master's, and I discovered in the educational theater program that this is kind of exactly what I was doing with the Insight Theater Company. And when I moved out to Los Angeles, um, I ended up for a year working at the first all-girls school, all-girl charter high school. And most of the students were either former felons, parolees, wards of the state, uh, unwed mothers, some were pregnant, some uh, already had kids, some were um, former prostitutes, Uh, some just couldn't function in a larger school and the classroom sizes were great, just 20. And it was one of the few occasions where I was hired exactly because of my background. They wanted someone who had an experience working with at-risk teenagers, but that the emphasis was going to be on the process, that the theater games I was going to use was, were designed to enhance their interpersonal skills. Um, it was a great assignment. I would have loved to have lasted longer than just one year. Uh, but as often is the case with my background education the following year, new principal, new school board took over, and they had a totally unrealistic view of what they wanted me to do. They felt, well, now the kids should do Shakespeare, and they should do Annie, and they clearly were not up for that. Um, so we went our separate ways, and as far as I know, at that particular high school, they still do not have theater or drama. So how do you start, how do you go into a class of all girls, troubled youth, who are going to be testing you to the nth degree, right? Because you're a man and you're unknown in theater. How do you start a class like that? Uh, By making it all about them. I usually start with two verbal warm-up games uh, that David taught me. One is called tirades and endorsements. A tirade is something that really pisses you off. An endorsement is something you're passionate about. 
So, so we'll do a few rounds of that. And it takes a little while to get into it. Um, but once they're into it, it's really quite powerful. Another one I'll do is best thing, worst thing. Tell me the best thing that happened to you today. Tell me the worst thing. And it forces them for the first time to think about their lives. And... I do a lot of role-playing with them. I do character interviews where they pick someone from their life they know really well, and I'll interview them in character. And sometimes after a few rounds of that, I'll put some of the characters in the scene to see what might develop. But what blows their mind at one point is I'll change the focus on the interview where, okay, we're going to do a character interview. You're going to play yourself 10 years from now. And then we do that, and it's amazing how many of them are wildly successful and very wealthy. Uh, a lot of them don't need men in their lives. Um, but it's the first few classes I worked really hard to make it as much fun for them as possible. Uh, I get them doing scenes right away. A great game is Miles Fallen's orientation game, which, which I've augmented to get them to collaborate and design a scene and act it out right off the spot, where on index cards I'll have them write three different set pieces and I'll break them up into groups of two and I'll give them one of the cards and tell them they have to come up with a quick scene, it could be about whatever they want, but it has to involve those three set pieces. When you say set pieces, I'm thinking about sets or prop. Um, can you clarify? Yeah, it, it could be a hand prop as an example. It could be a comb. It could be a fireplace. It could be a window uh, uh, leading to a fire scene. But the challenge is they can't talk about it. We have to see them show me those objects through exploration. We can't just say, hey, open the window. I'm going to throw a log on the fireplace and uh, give me the coal. See? <laughs> Uh, a lot of my work with that group would be large group activities. I do something called teacher and role where I'll play a part and the rest of the class are characters. It could be as simple as a press conference. Uh, then I'll break them up into a group activities, four or five students, and then it's like a little presentation, one scene, one scene after another. Uh, but those first few classes are pretty hard. Uh, it was an ideal environment because, again, the class sizes were not larger than 20, and it was four times a week, and the class was also during the day, which is really important. It was during the regular school day. Uh, what I do now, I work for El Camino College, and we have a high school outreach program where I teach college-bearing courses for at-risk teenagers. But those classes go from 3.30 to 5.30, sometimes a little longer. So they enter with their energy already down. So it's, it's an effort to get them up right away. I'll do group games like Kitty Wants a Corner or a shepherd game called Sound and Motion. Um, but for a lot of these students, they walk in expecting, oh, it's a theater class, it's going to be lecturing, and it's like, no. No, get up on your feet. You're learning by doing. That's my whole approach. Wonderful. And if it's a class, do you have to grade them at the end, or how do you do that? Yeah, grading, uh, 
depending on the class, rating is based on attendance, participation, cooperation. Um, there are quizzes I have to give and papers. Uh, I tell the students there's nothing I'm going to get them to do that I'm not willing to do myself. But I make it very clear that I'm not grading them on becoming great actors or actresses. It's just give it a try. I kind of, in some places I tell them, this is kind of like Vegas. What happens here stays here. And that seems to work pretty well with them. Now, um, your book, the book I have, Listen Harder, I become, mm -hmm. I become to realize that we talk about, you know, acceptance and yes and in the beginning, but I think listen harder is probably the most important thing to teach in the beginning because if they're not listening, they're not going to be able to play. Yeah, yeah and I, I kind of lifted the title from something Alan Arkin said to David, which was, uh, when, when in doubt in an improv, listen harder. Um, Depending on the group I'm with, I will either list some of the rules up front or slowly lay out the rules to them through side coaching. Um, sometimes I feel like on that uh, Facebook Apply improv site or some others, uh, people get too wordy or too overly intellectual about the work. Maybe mm -hmm. it's pretty simple. Maybe it's because I was fortunate enough to have David and Howard and Paul as my teachers, but it was laid out simply for me. Just listen, agree, and support the other person and explore. And it was basically got it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because, with, especially with the at-risk groups I work with, uh, there's a lot of put-downs, there's a lot of denigration, so I have to work through that very quickly. Uh, in their minds, improv means you can do whatever you want. And I'm always emphasizing everything has a structure, everything has a set of rules. As long as you adhere to the structure and the rules, you'll do just fine. It's, a, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I think, that, I think uh, to interrupt for a second, I think analyzing improv is like Mark Twain said, it's like, it's like dissecting a frog. You find out uh, what's inside the frog, but it's dead. Yeah. And you've taken all the spontane spontaneity and joy out of it by kind of overanalyzing. Yeah. It's, the terminology has changed over the years, but still, you know, essentially the same thing. What some people call, well, are you accepting offers? To me, that's agreement. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the sweeps, that's well for me, that's someone coming on doing a walk-on. Um, that's when I realize I'm old. Uh, <laughs> now, do you perform anymore at all or not? I do perform occasionally. I'm trying to get back into it some more. I always play with my students, but it's kind of hard because I kind of have to have a third eye on kind of observing everything to make sure it goes on track. Um, but last year, when I spent a month with David, uh, getting his collection together, which we donated to Northwestern University, uh, I hooked up with Pam Victor one night, we had dinner, we shared a lot of games, and I, uh, she invited me to come to a workshop, and it never occurred to me that, oh, he wants me to participate, 
in a, in a workshop. workshop. When, when I went there, there I thought I was just going to sit and walk work. And then and as soon as you got to do the warm-up, she's like, like, Michael, get up. I was like, oh! And I felt a little rusty at first, but then it was a wonderful experience. And, you know, I forgot that, you know, I need to play more. I need to play with more adults. And, you know, sometimes it's just... Getting out of the house, uh, Jeff Mikowski does a drop-in improv workshop every Saturday. I have to leave at a certain time to actually get there. Most times it's, ah, it's too late, I guess it's time for a bike ride. Um, and for the longest time, I had this thought that, well, maybe playing is a young man's game, you know? But when I would see these older second city alumni who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, in the, the case, case of Paul Sand, who's 81, they still get together, they still play, and they're having a wonderful time. And it's, yeah, you should always be playing. So, trying to play more with adults. Because they are fun. And if the bottom line is about being authentic and being genuine and being our real self, then it's pretty easy. I mean, yeah. There's forms and things like that, but still, it's, it's pretty easy, I think. Um, but I, I've been teaching more than performing, and I certainly miss it. I love performing myself. Yeah. So, um, I had a funny moment uh, a few months ago. Rita Sills, who is Paul uh, Sills' daughter, she does wonderful small-intensive workshops. And usually at the end, she'll have an open presentation. People will come. And I went to the last one, and they wanted the audience to come up for a, uh, a warm-up game. Uh, which, which I participated in, and I thought it was wonderful, it was great, and I sat down, and then they did another game, and one of the players pulled me up, and I didn't do anything because I got caught up watching everyone else going, wow, these people are pretty damn good. Forgetting that, oh, I'm supposed to participate. So, yeah, it's... I, I believe, like David would say all the time, you know, improv is like playing the piano. You really have to practice every day. And when you do get on, when not practicing, yeah, you're a little rusty. And it's amazing how some of those old bad habits come back real quick. So, talking about analyzing things, when you're, when you're doing a class, doing a curriculum of a class, do you have, I've been thinking recently about trying to do classes on just the who one night and then the what and the where. Have you ever taught that way yourself, just concentrating on one, one thing per night, or do you mix it up well, a lot? It, it, it depends, depends on the class. class. I, for El Camino College, I teach two different courses. One is um, theater appreciation, which is supposed to be an overview of writing, acting, and directing. And I get the students to learn that by doing specific theater games geared towards that. Uh, there's also, I teach intro to acting, where I teach it almost essentially the same way, but there's also components where they have to do a scripted monologue and scene. But the way I get them into that is I give them a structure of what I would like to see in the scene, and I break it up into the who, what, where. And the who means two people, and I prefer that it's realistic people, not, okay, it's Justin Bieberman and Miley Cyrus, whether it's a mother or father. And then getting them into what is the scene about, 
but trying, trying to get, get them focused on just a brief sentence, like Pam fell down birth control in their daughter's room. And the where I always try to make specific. It has to be in a specific place. Is it a living room, a bedroom, a kitchen? So I do. The long, the, the, the long answer to your question is, yeah, I do focus on the who and the what and the where. Um, but for a lot of these students, they're half listening. Um, a common thing with my classes is I'll set up an exercise. I'll briefly describe the structure, and it's always, does everyone have this? Yes? No? Okay, good. Begin, uh, begin working. And then, Mr. Golding, yes? What are we doing? <laughs> and I, I use humor a lot. I, I openly mock my students sometimes with, you know what? It's my problem. When I ask if you got it and you said yes, I assume you got it. It's my fault. I apologize. Uh, you, you, you talked about an exercise you did with, I think it was two kids, a boy and a girl, and you put them in a lifeboat getting out of the Titanic. And... And do you remember this story? Yeah, yeah I, I did, did that, that workshop at the Canadian Improv Games. I was during the festival, which is always great for me because the students have already been really well trained in improvisation. And some of them know who I am and are kind of excited to be working with me. Um, it's an ongoing argument I used to have with Willie Wiley where I feel that a lot of the students don't use all the skills that improv requires. And his response was always, we're dealing with drama teachers who are volunteering. Not everyone is Michael Golden or Paul or David or Howard. And again, I go back to, it's not rocket science. It's very simple. And when I do expose the students to all the skills that are required, it's like a big epiphany for them, a big cathartic moment where... When we started doing the scene on the Titanic, the two students just automatically got into the jokey byplay back and forth. And the students watching were enjoying it, but I had to stop it with, all right, you're on a boat. It's like 20 degrees outside. You, got, you both seem to be totally relaxed. So they started getting into the temperature, and that really affected their body language. Then I had to add, well, all right. The boat seems to be pretty stable, but you're on a rocky ocean. It's going back and forth. So they had to start dealing with the motion of the boat. And then I just kept on adding on different layers that you're both hungry. How does that make you feel and find a way to express that feeling uh, physically? And the scene kind of ended where... One person found a chocolate bar and they shared it together and they huddled together, but I really made them work. And uh, the students watching and the students playing went, that was, that was amazing. And it's like, yeah, it's, you gotta get just, the simple way David would say to us in the workshop was just be real. Be real. And to him, it's the easiest thing in the world. I feel the same way. Uh, there still was humor that came out of the scene, but the humor came from the situation, it came from the reality of the characters, um, and it gave them a different way to approach improv, and it was kind of cool where for the next few nights of the matches, 
I, I saw, saw the students adding more layers to their improvs, which was great. Yeah, I think getting in touch with the body, because sometimes it can become talking heads, and getting in touch with feelings in the body, sensations like the weather changes, or you know, snowing or raining or things like that, and and all those spolen exercises that deal with sensing your body, feeling your body, aware of your yeah. body. Because um, if we stay in our body, we're going to be in the present, I think. When, when I, I first started, started working uh, with teenagers, uh, whether at risk or not, it seemed like the common trap they would fall into right away was just trying to be as talky as possible, trying to be as funny as possible. But the problem I, I've been experiencing over the past few years is the students who get up to do an improv, but then they kind of look blankly at me or at each other with, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And I think a lot of that is because so many of my students are dependent on their cell phones, but they don't talk. Most of my students text because it's uh, direct, uh, it's less uncomfortable for them, but what they're losing is the nuance of conversation, the nuance of empathy. And I'm always, my side coaching in those situations is you're just having a conversation, a regular conversation. Just look at each other. And it's what happens in these classes is a lot of my students watching think they're helping out. If the students on stage don't know what to say, so they start yelling out suggestions of what they should be doing or saying. So it's, um, it's an interesting time to be working with teenagers. You want, to have, you want them to have fun, but you want to coach them in a way that knows, they know that you're the coach. And yeah. they don't have, and even I do a group with people with Parkinson's and their caregivers. And the people with Parkinson's can be often slow in responding. It takes them time to get their words out. And the caregivers want to say the words for them or tell them yeah. what to do. And so I've been doing kind of exercises in silence, you know, paying attention to silence for a while to yeah. not, without blaming them for interrupting or controlling or whatever they're doing. I'm, I'm in your book right now. You can't see me, but I'm, I'm in your book. And, um, there are some skills that, uh, that are in the book from the um, Iowa Olympic uh, Handbook, in 19, Improv Olympic Handbook, rather, in 1982. And I'm just okay. going to share a couple of them. Maybe we can riff off of that a little bit. Focus on the where, not the audience. Keep the where alive by discovering details inside and outside. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's, that's pretty, pretty much, much all spoken. Yeah. Um, Keep in, play, keep in play with those on the stage with you. Yeah, that's... A lot of that's just trying to be in the moment. Uh, David's whole thing was, your focus should be on trying to make the other person look as good as possible because they're doing the same thing with you. Um, which was a real hurdle when I was working with comedians. Trying to get comedians to work together as an ensemble because they're all just dependent on themselves and if they're not getting that laugh every five seconds, they feel like they're not getting over on stage. Um, every once in a while, I'll post one of those skill sets on an improv page and people just go nuts. It's like they've never seen anything like that before and this is just, to me, all basic stuff. Um, 
let's see. I'm actually looking through my book, too. Oh, my God. I wrote this. You did write it. And here's another one I love. Endow space props with more than one quality, like hot coffee, soggy pizza, dull razor, feel for each prop. And that's going to give the object work much more authenticity as any... And, you know, when we imagine that we're feeling something, I do an exercise where I have people imagine they're touching um, sandpaper and then they're okay. touching velvet. And you can get a sensory uh, uh, neuro something going on when you do that. I'm not explaining it too well, but, you know, you can actually feel it when you really concentrate on it. Yeah. It's, it's getting, getting back, back to the, the old school improvisers uh, at the uh, improv theater I go to. They're, They're very, very big, big on space work, and it's, it's wonderful, because I'm sitting there watching, going, I can almost see the cup of coffee, I can almost see the plate of spaghetti, because they're so into it, and the attention to detail is, is great. Um, and again, when I do these workshops at the Canadian Improv Games, it's like, why haven't I ever heard about this before, because someone was just drinking a cup of coffee during a scene, and it's just kicking it back, and like my only side coach direction was, it's a really bad, sour cup of coffee, and every sip you're taking is just lying there in your stomach and turning your gut into a knot. What is that like? And it just changed the whole focus of the scene for the player. Another one is... Um Stay in the here and now, no playwriting. And a basic game, like a one-word story, is a great way to teach people about when they're playwriting, I think. Yeah. But you probably have some other games that illustrate that as well, about playwriting versus being in the here and now. Yeah. It's... I have to, it's, it's, it's like, like a fine line I walk with that, that because I will give students planning time for certain exercises, but you don't want them to overplan it where they're doing the scene and they're trying to remember what they planned. And when I give them the assignment to plan out a scene, uh, I try to give them as little time as possible, maybe 30 seconds. But I tell them, all you need to know is who you are, where you are, what are you doing. It's that simple. But... The problem is they're not used to communicating with each other. Look down their phones and you have to talk to each other. And that gets a little frustrating for me sometimes. Um, there are some games which will force them to be in the moment. Uh, one is a great game David uh, created called uh, one word, two words, three words, full sentence. Where you just start doing the scene, but you can only use one word. And then I'll pick it up to two words, then three, then the full sentence. But the second part is, we're going to go backwards, but I'm not going to side coach you. Whoever has the impulse, will take it down to three, and then two, and then one. Oh, I love it, yeah. Uh, sometimes they'll mock the game. A lot of students love mock the game because they're trying to get a live reaction from uh, the class. Uh, in fact, a game I recently did with my students uh, is called Lone Wolf, where only one player can move and speak at a time. And I try to do the scene with at least four players and it really 
focus is that. It's, it's, a, a, it's a, a great, great game, game for being, being in the moment. moment. Well, yeah, my students are not used to being in the moment. moment. They're looking at their phones. They're how much longer are we going to be here? What are we going to do today? I'm tired. I'm hungry. It's getting dark outside. Well, I think everybody has attention deficit disorder these days due to, like, you know, internet and video games and things like that. And we're not used to actually looking people in the face and speaking to them. And just just sitting across from somebody for, you know how TJ and Dave start their shows where they're just looking oh, yeah. at each other? And they can go from there for an incredible experience. I have many games, uh, group games, which rely on uh, an eye contact. And students really rebel against that. It takes a while for them to get into it. Uh, I do a closure exercise called the gift circle, where each person has to first make eye contact with everyone in the circle. Just make one sweep. And sometimes that takes a long time, because I tell them, don't look at the next person until the person you're looking at actually looks up and looks at you. And then you have to pick someone to give them a gift that you feel they would really like. It could be realistic, it could be surreal. The only rule is it can't be a put-down. But my constant side coaching direction is you have to look them in the eyes. And a lot of times I get, why? You just have to. Draw circles, you got to make eye contact. Um, yeah, it's the law of rebellion with eye contact. I also get a lot of rebellion with one of my favorite uh, viral stolen games, which is called Contact, that whenever you say something to the other player, you have to touch them in a different way. And the students are looking at me like I just asked them to copy it. And sometimes they'll just mock that, where they'll just kick each other in the shin, or touch each other on the shoulder. No, you have to touch each other differently every time you say something. Why? The whole purpose of it is... You do the scene first about contact, and then they do it a second time. And hopefully, after the second time, you go to class, did you see a big difference? Did it seem more realistic? Did the emotions seem more organic? And sometimes the students just screw with you and go, no, no, not really. Right. Well, I admire you for teaching younger people. I think it's a talent and a real gift. So, um, Michael, where do you want to be in five years? <laughs> Five years. Well, I've been thinking of leaving Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, I have had this fantasy of moving back east, small New England town. Maybe I'll do improv workshops. The host of a late night radio show, playing old time radio shows. Um, this year, I kind of accepted something Willie Wiley and Howard and David trying to get me to accept for the longest time, which is, one, you're old, and two, you're up there now, you're part of programs that have been around for a while, you're kind of a pioneer, and that's kind of an ego egocentric thing for me to say, because I was raised by the Giants, and for the 40th anniversary of the Canadian Crop Games, it was the first time I went, you know what, I'm going to embrace my place in improv history with the games. I was here since the beginning. So I was getting the same type of love and attention that Howard and David were getting. 
but still there's a part of me inside where I feel like I'm not worthy because, no, 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 Paul's a giant and David and Howard and Dell and all those people. But after I did, well, first it was the documentary. After I did the documentary because it wasn't my intention to be in it as much as I was. But when I watched the first cut of the film, it was, wow, improv has been a pretty big part of my life. I've always viewed it as, it's a part of my life, I'm really a writer. This is something I do as a supplemental thing. And then I wrote my book, which originally was just going to be exclusively about the year I spent working with the uh, all-girls school. Uh, but the publishers I was shopping around with, they wanted like a movie ending. That I came in, I took these girls to barely talk, and them great actresses. And that's like, no, that's not what it is. But then I decided, well, what if I include my work with Insight, my work with the Canadian Broad Gang or the comic strip, and Listen Harder basically is a book about my career in improv. And I was able to step back and go, oh, shit, yeah, I've been doing this for about 45 years. And I'm still pretty surprised by the response my blogs get. Um, this past October was the fifth anniversary of my father's death. And I decided to write the story behind how I got him to improvise at all, uh, which David Shepard encouraged me to do. We... One of the last ones we worked on was Life Play, which was a series of games that you could play on the phone. And David was in the hospital for a while, and we played almost every day. And I told him, I wish I could play with my dad the way I played with you. And David just went, well, why don't you? And yeah, I was lucky to record it. And when I published the blog about the story behind getting my father to play, um... I had about 10,000 hits within a few weeks, and that was unusual, and I was getting a lot of private messages about how my father's home resonated with a lot of improvisers, because in a lot of ways, it was almost drama therapy. I learned more about my dad through him improvising that poem than anything else, and I was just so lucky to have done that a year and a half before he passed away. And, and to still have it as a record. Um, my, my mother, mother has, has a copy of the CD, but she will only listen to doing the poem when I play it on the phone. She, for some reason, she enjoys hearing his voice again on the phone. It, and it is a beautiful piece. I've read, I've read it a couple of times. And I, I want to go back to something you said. You know, of course, there have been pioneers in, in improv going way back, but there's another generation. And yeah. you're, you deserve the accolades. You deserve to embrace that people love you and appreciate your work. And um, I know I certainly do. I've gotten so much out of our little chats um, that we've had by email, another uh, Facebook, whatever. And um, I'm just del I'm so delighted that you're in my life. And I'm so appreciative <laughs> of you giving us this time again today, David, Michael. I was going to call you David. <laughs> Michael. Uh, many people have. It's... It's, it's, it's depending on the person you talk to, I'm either known as you know, David's historian or the at-risk guy or I work with comics. It's, it's, it's weird, weird in a way. way. Um, 
Well, also, working with David's archives was interesting. Yes. I mean, when I started sharing everything I had in David's collection on Facebook, uh, the response was unexpected. You know, because it resonated with a lot of people from Second City who were in companies in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, so yeah, I'm glad I was able to do that, to share everything I had in David's collection with the community. And I still do. Well, you're a great contributor to improv history and to the current movement of improv, I think. It's wonderful. So I am uh, I'm thinking about you riding in your spandex. I know you're an avid <laughs> cyclist. And you keep fun in your life, and that's one of the most important things, too. And I hope we can do this again sometime, Michael. But it's been really wonderful to talk to you today. And any advice for a beginning improviser that you'd like to maybe... Give some sage wisdom. <laughs> it's not all about comedy. There are a lot of people who are afraid to try improv because they think they're not funny or they're not bright enough. And I tell them that uh, when Compass first started, it wasn't about comedy. It was about satire. It can be funny, but as long as it's realistic and the humor comes from the reality of the situation and the characters... But my, my, my big advice is just be yourself. You are the instrument. You know, there's no one else like you. And improv is supposed to be about sharing your life. You know, when I do my workshops with my students, I tell them, I want to know what your passions are, your beliefs are. I want to know about the people in your life. And I want you to show me those people. I mean, one of the first things, when I first met David and we were doing the Improv Olympics, we were doing a warm-up game, and he went, play your father. And in my head, I was ready to do Groucho Marx and all these other idols I grew up with. And like, my father goes, yeah, what is your father like? And that just blew my mind. So I'm constantly asking my students to show me the people in your life, either in a scene or an interview. And uh, yeah, just don't be afraid. It's... My, My friend's, friend's girlfriend recently uh, told, told me she wants to do it, but she's so afraid. And I told her, we're, we're improvising right now. We're not writing a script. We're having a conversation. We're in the moment. Here's the scene. Uh, Carrie wants to know about improv, and Michael's going to tell her. Here we are. So, yeah, it should be. There was a documentary on the Canadian Improv Games called In the Moment, which is a wonderful documentary. And there's a quick shot of David where he tells the camera, if there, if there was, was a pill, an improv pill, I would prescribe people to take it daily. Mm-hmm. So that's, those, those are my words of wisdom. Well, thank you very much. And yeah. um, I'm, I selfishly, I hope you do move back east because then we'll be closer. Because you're okay. kind of far away right now, Michael. So, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> well, finding a lot of improvisers out here. It's so I'm having a wonderful time reconnecting with all these Second City people. Yep. And uh, again, thank you so much, and I'm going to look forward to talking to you again. Okay. okay. This, this is great. great. Th- bye-bye. Bye. Bye.